he was casted to be a hot shot aging person. Well, he's not going to realize anything now because he's well, dead. That is wow. very true. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the Paul Thomas Anderson film, Boogie Nights. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome in to episode 166 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with Nick Cheney. Hey. And Toussaint Egan. Okay. What was that? Nothing. I don't know. Was that something from the movie we're going to be talking about today? Mm, no. Okay. I think he's backing out of it. I think. He tried and it didn't what, work. Uh, we need to know now. What was that a reference to? That wasn't a reference to anything. I just. Really? Just off the top of my head. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, cheers. Thanks. Glad, yeah. Glad to have you. Well, here. well done. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking to the audience, by the way. I'm talking to Dusad. I'm, I'm really glad he decided to join us here. Yeah. Because <laughs> usually when we do these episodes, he's f- physically here, but he's not actually here. Oh, fuck off. Whoa. Well, it's not that big of a stretch. So <laughs> That's okay. Dusad will be joining us for this episode, so yep. that's very nice of him. I'm here. He's not just here for the beer and pizza. We're getting off to a really brutal start. Yeah. Are we? You usually space this shit out over the course of an episode. I kind of try to like, you know, like chicken feed, kind of like. Oh. What are you doing here? That's chicken feed. That's me. Oh, okay. Throw the chicken feed. You don't just like dump it. You go, okay, little chickadees, and a little something for you, and a little something for you. That's how that's chicken feed, okay? That's how you do chicken feed. That's how you do it. Okay? That, that's and how now you our do. audience knows because they could see that. Yes. Yeah. And they saw you slowly moving your hand back and forth. It's similar to the jerk off motion, but instead <laughs> of making a cylindrical uh grasp, mm-hmm. you're doing more of like Like your, car throwing. Yeah, like your your uh thumb and your pointer finger mm-hmm. are gonna kinda ever so lightly kinda jiggle off of each other like <laughs> They're jiggling while they're doing that? A little bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Anyway. Yes. So, today, uh, a movie that does not revolve around chicken feed Mm -hmm. is a little film by Paul Thomas Anderson called Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. Which is, in fact, the fourth film we're reviewing of his. Hell yeah. Which means we now will have done half of his films at this current point. Well, let's see here. Heartache, Boogie Nights, Magnolia... Punch Drunk Love, The Master, There Will Be Blood, and Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread. Yeah. Whoa. That's crazy. So we've only got four to go. So we can get there. Hey, that's music to my ears. (laughs) You're like, next four episodes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're going to hit on Boogie Nights in just a little bit. Uh, But before that, 
uh, going to make it a second straight episode with a week in review. Hey, hey, hey. We had hey. one last week with our new friend Dan, and this week just the three of us are going to chat a little bit about what we have been uh, keeping our eyes on in the uh, movie and television world. Yeah. So, I suppose I'll go first. Please. As uh, tomorrow, uh, myself, Ooh. my wife, and our friends, uh, one of which is Kenny, Kenny uh, a former... <laughs> <That was my laughs> memento. <laughs> Kenny! That's good. That's good. Uh, our former uh, host, who's now sometimes a guest on here, uh, are going to be going to Orlando to go to Universal Studios uh, and also go into their Friday night. Horror Nights event. Huh. Yep. Uh, and they have quite a few uh, of, uh, houses that involve old films, new properties, that kind of thing. So there's like a house this year for Stranger Things. It's a Bloom House. There is a Bloom House. Uh, Actually, it's a Bloom House house, right? Right, but it has two films, uh, which include Happy Death Day, Happy Death Day, and the first Purge. Oh, so, great. not to be confused with the actual first Purge movie, but you're referring to the first Purge, the fourth no. installment. I am referring to the fourth installment. That's what I mean. Oh, the I fourth see. installment. Gotcha. Yeah, Just it would to... start in Florida, wouldn't it? <laughs> what the Purge? Yeah. Um, the first Purge. Answer that question. I know, but like... Well, it wasn't Florida. Well, in our our reality, anyway. So, uh, in addition, uh, myself and Kenny have been trying to watch some of these films and television shows, as mm -hmm. there is a, a Stranger Things house there this year. Yeah. And uh, last weekend, we watched a couple more. Uh, to kind of clear it up, because we've watched so many things. Stranger Things, we watched Trick or Treat, we watched Halloween 4. Uh, but the two we watched last weekend are the two I want to hit on. Uh, and the first that I wanted to talk about is Poltergeist, which I had never seen before uh, and really never had a huge interest in seeing before. Uh, but this film was actually extraordinarily entertaining, I thought. Um, and even though I did not think it was the best horror film or anything like that, uh, this movie had plenty there for you, especially in the era it is from, as this has this whimsical uh, sort of Steven Spielberg 1980s feel to it, while at the same time actually being a horror film. Now that I've seen it, because I was actually there that night, mm -hmm. uh, so that was my first time watching it. It was probably, I mentioned to you, that was probably the only blind spot in my what I would call, like, the canon of horror. Like, I've seen just about every major, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. um, with that exception. And I got to say, now that I've seen it, I can't imagine that anyone ever thought that Toby Hooper directed that. <laughs> like, it, not because Toby Hooper is bad or anything like that, but mm -hmm. it is, like, Spielberg through and through, and it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, like, it's even more blatant than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, I thought the early parts of this film, uh, at some points were kind of fun, but at some points I was just kind of bored, to be totally honest. Uh, everything in the middle that involves a lot of the early parts of the scientists kind of people showing up and going through the house. I just, I think this is the problem of watching this for the first time in 2000. 18 that I was just kind of bored with that whole procedure that happened. 
But the last 15 minutes of this film was absolutely fan-fucking-tastic. Everything after the poltergeist comes back for the second time, and we see the house basically just implode on itself. Uh, You have Craig T. Nelson yelling at the guy who owns the property about why did you move the headstones and not move the bodies. The daughter shows up and just screams, what the hell is going on? I mean, it's just... There's just so much happening in that last 15 minutes, and there's just a lot that is well done and almost perfectly placed in the film, uh, which is just a complete credit to mostly Steven Spielberg, but also to really well done editing, sound design, and also to um, graphics for that time are just amazing, even though like the clown thing looks stupid, but... You know, everything inside the closet and, like, the light and then the huge stomach-like thing that's sucking them in. I mean, all that is just... And, and, and the house just collapsing in on itself. Oh, it looks so fucking good. I'd really like to go back and watch the original. I saw the the remake a couple of years ago when it came out, and I wasn't really all that... Yeah, I wasn't really all that blown away by it. Didn't hear good things. No, it wasn't that good. I gotta say, I'm with you in that the last 15 minutes were my favorite part. In fact, I actually think I gave the movie a, a lower rating than you did, because I really didn't care for this. Um, mm. I thought it was fine at part, but even before the house started like imploding on itself and like the entire neighborhood was going crazy, I feel like the film was still, though, scarier after the first exorcism, whatever you want to call it, like when they get rid of the poltergeist for the first time, like everything after that, it utilized a lot of the same things, but was slightly better. And yet it only had about 20 minutes of film left. And that was kind of the problem. I mean, the clown, uh, the clown scene is much more terrifying the second go around than the first go around. And I kind of would say that even about some of the other stuff, like the closet and whatnot. So I don't know. It's kind of weird how this movie has such a weird drop off point where it's like a Spielberg esque romp and then the last 20 minutes while it's still fun and energetic and crazy it's also slightly scarier and and i just thought that was a weird like why why wasn't it just amped up to instead of like oh this is the whatever section and then the last 20 minutes will actually try a little harder i mean if you compare it though to something all also of spielberg's ilk from that time period I mean, Jaws has a clear separation in what that's doing, and that's a better film, but that is a film that starts off with an entire 45 to 50 minutes of just this bland uh, moment where they're going through, which a lot of people think is the best part of the film, but then the last half of the film is them going after the sharks, so it's completely separated, where I I think... I just felt like it was a do-over. Like it, it was, yeah. it, it's not so much that it was even divided, but it was like we did this for a hundred minutes, and then let's do what we did in a hundred minutes in twenty minutes and see how crazy it looks on fast forward. Mm. And I felt like the last twenty minutes were good, and I was like, well, why weren't we at that speed and rhythm? Not maybe from the from the get go, but that kind of intensity. Like I, I guess just, my I guess my feeling on that would be, if you're looking at it from a character perspective, it wouldn't make sense because. They would have no idea what to do in that situation, and they'd all just be dead. Well, I, yeah. So, that's ah. fine with me. <laughs> but, I mean, like, the whole first uh, whatever, you know, you have people slipping around in mud, and it's yeah. just a little, like, oh. Uh-huh. I hear you. Although, when the tree went and took the boy, I had flashbacks to... Uh, arm is pulling in yeah, there. <laughs> I had flashbacks to Evil Dead, and I was like, oh, tree, don't rape that little boy. <laughs> 
That's a real thing that happened in the first Evil Dead movie. There's a lot of Not stuff. Not a boy. With, like the first first? Yeah, Evil have Dead? you ever seen that, by the way? No. Oh, man. First of all, those movies are great. Yeah. But any horror aficionado will tell you that while the first movie is great, which it is, and some of the effects are amazing and it's actually pretty scary or whatever, there's a really weird scene where Sam Raimi just doesn't know when to stop and mm. a tree comes alive, which, okay, takes one of the women, which, fine. Like, you know, I mean, just, like, grabs her and oh, yeah. terrifies. And then, like, Starts. a branch becomes phallic. Yeah. And it becomes Rosemary's baby. Yeah. And it's just like, oh. Way to bring the mood down. Yeah. And yet it's totally thinking that this is just a normal, you know, scare tactic. Like, when did it come you out? You came to the horror show. Um, 80-something. Yeah. Sam Raimi horror films are very bizarre. They are, and that's why we love them. Uh, Drag Me to Hell was one of the few horror movies I saw in the theater when I was younger. And I was just thrown off because... <laughs> I kind of went into that thinking it was going to be one thing. Yeah, it's And not. it is not yeah, that. I actually watched it for the first time last year. Mm-hmm. And definitely, even now, like it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And mm-hmm. it was fun. Uh, but it's... It, when he, you got to the fun parts, it was fun. Yeah. But I, I think it was just a very procedural type horror film that when it starts to turn, it turns fast. True. But even the beginning when it's in that kind of boring mode, what I do love is that he has a lot of fun with the worst jump scares ever. Like, <laughs> in a normal movie that's bad, um, the jump scares that are unearned are the worst part. In a Sam Raimi, at least modern day project, some of his best parts of those movies are the ridiculous jump scares that are in no way earned, but are so comical that you have to laugh at them. I still uh, really like... Uh, the part where, um, God, I can't remember the actor's name. Justin Long? No, no. Oh. Uh, it's the guy who was at the bank who, uh, it's funny about bringing up the bank, or it's a bank or it's a it mortgage. A bank, yeah. It is a bank. Yep. It's funny because he's the guy who's inspecting the bank uh, in Ocean's 13. Oh, right, right, yes. Yes. The kind of Kevin Pollack knock- yes! knockoff. Yes, yes. Uh, anyways, for whatever reason, somebody comes in and like blows their nose and just this enormous amount of blood just spurts all over him. And he just has this offhand line where he says something like, Oh my God, I think I swallowed a drop or something like that. It's just, yeah, it's just so preposterous, but yeah, I don't know. Anyways, getting back on track here. Uh, I thought Poltergeist was a, a pretty good film and I'm actually very interested to see what it's going to be as a haunted house because I think that actually will be quite good. Um, and speaking of that little, uh, shameless plug here, but Kenny has interest interest in coming in and doing kind of a review episode, not just on the haunted houses, but also on the properties that are with them. And I mean, it'll be a little, it'll probably be a little all over the place, but and, I think it'll be fun. And yeah. actually, Nick, you said you would be interested in joining us. For I it, would so. love to listen in live. Okay, maybe sneak a couple comments in here and there. I mean, I've seen the movies. <laughs> So speaking of Horror Nights, uh, another property that already got mentioned uh, earlier on this episode uh, that was there, and I didn't see that exact film, but I saw a film that was from the same uh, universe, was The Purge Election Year, which uh, I thought was okay. I didn't think it was that great. That's what I figured you would. I only recommended that one because I think you'd like the first one the most Mm -hmm. because that's the one that will probably look most like what you're walking into without watching the first purge. Yeah. 
I mean, the the problem with this is that when this movie's doing what it is good at, it's good. Yeah. But it tries so hard to get involved in. There's some great line readings. Though. Oh, there are the, absolutely something about waffles. Yeah. Um, and then there's what was there's one weird line that they say that me and Toussaint both have no idea what it could possibly mean. It's it is so random. But I think they, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but they say it at least two or three times, so it's clear it's some kind of weird colloquialism or something between the two. Are you talking about like the shop owner? Yeah, and he's talking about like some. He says it once on the roof. Some weird innuendo or something. Yep, I'm gonna. Look oh, it he up. says he he absolutely says something about. It's some about, and I don't know if he uses the N word, but it's some about black people. Yeah, and it well, is very bizarre there, that it, there it does come back. There's yeah. that. There is the. Oh, this is something different. Than something that. different. Okay. There's that because it's something I could repeat if I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's that. There was the he he loves waffles as much as he loves pussy. Yeah, that was that was it. No, that was, there's yeah, one that, other one yeah. though. Yeah. That's what I'm trying. Hold on, while you yeah. talk more so about at, it. So at any rate, there are a lot of fun little moments here. Like the uh, teenage black girl who is obsessed with the candy bar, and she came back to murder him because he wouldn't give her the candy bar. Yeah. And that's actually the best part of the film when she gets run over by the crazed uh, friend who is out there being this vigilante. Good night, blue cheese. Good night, blue cheese. Yeah, that's weird. They say that more than once, and it's mm, weird. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck anyway. does that mean. Good night, blue cheese. Anyways, uh, that scene is amazing, and it's perpetrated by uh, the girl who plays the reincarnation of the grandmother in Get Out. So, Really? Yeah. Aw. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah, it is, and that whole scene was fun. That was the best. There was a bunch of shotguns in that scene, and, and the black guy is Bubba from Forrest Gump, which is also great. Really? Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. That's funny. I know. So, at any rate, that film was uh, very bland, I thought. And, I mean, yeah. I'd watch the other Perch films. But if you this... can stomach that one, I think you at least... <laughs> well, I mean, I think you get a kick out of watching the other two. And that's the thing. Like, they're not trying to be great. They're trying to be popcorn fun. I mean, they're trying to make this country great. Okay. At any rate, uh, I thought it was just okay. Um, and oh. it's... Uh, this Justin from my colleague Tucson. Tucson, you want to say it? <laughs> yeah, appar- from Urban Dictionary. Oh, uh, apparently, let's, let's just put that out. It's there. a it's a colloquialism for saying "good night, piece of shit." Oh, okay. So, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, yeah, I guess. But okay. Mm. okay. Huh, interesting. Mm. Uh, so yeah, not so in love with the Purge series, but uh, I have to say, even though most people and I am not a horror nights veteran, but People on the internet who are, uh, who like rank the houses before they've been in them, think that this house is going to be absolutely awful, uh, which, you know, they probably know and they've seen things in history and whatever. But at the same time, uh, the idea of putting the Purge and Happy Death Day in the same house kind of intrigues me. Only if they merge together, because if it's like, you go through the first part and it's Happy Death Day, and then the second part is The Purge. That's going to be stupid, probably. Just, yeah, fold them into one. But I was going to say, if they merge together, and I mean, it's not in a movie, it's in a haunted house form, right. I feel right. like it could be fun. You have to let me know, which you obviously will, mm-hmm. unless we stop talking, um, how they, if they at all incorporate uh, 
the time loop element of Happy Death Day. Obviously, I don't see how they or why they wouldn't. Mm. And I mean something simple. And I'm not saying like it's got to be crazy. But like if one room has like a deja vu type, you know. Yeah, it element. would be. It would again. When we were watching the, we were watching Happy Death Day. Kenny was telling me that he was really hoping that they you ended up in the room where the guy is trying to get with the main character and the guy in the baby mask where the is dubstep thing yes yeah yeah which is probably that, my favorite that, scene in the whole that, that would make sense yeah. um my thought has been especially if they don't merge together at any point my thought has been that you have and i don't know how long it will be but almost have it be a progression where you start with happy death day and then you end up at the purge but then you go back at least once and hopefully twice and end up at the beginning again and it's it plays out somewhat differently i mean that'd that'd be fun so we'll see it might be awful it might be nothing and we'll end up going through and be like wow that was shit but um i will try to let you know and let everybody know in a future episode so who wants to go next um i'll go next okay yeah so coming off of our last week in review i wanted to just wrap something up that i had started back then and now i want to like finish now is this the book yeah this is a book <laughs> yeah it's one of the guests yeah i finished uh nomon this past week like 700 pages and i thought it was i thought it was okay i wouldn't recommend it to a first-time reader of his work um i think that if i was to describe to somebody it would be like it's like cloud atlas meets terry gilliam's brazil Ugh. yeah that sounds awful and i say that yeah. not because it is awful but yeah. because that's just like, Brazil, I think, is great. Cloud Atlas, mm. I pretty much hate. Yeah, I know. And yet, I also don't think Brazil works completely. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. I, I just would not want to see those two mixed. Yeah, I mean, it's anyway. it, it, it has some interesting parts of it, but, like, three-fifths of the way, I was just begging the book to be over. Because, <laughs> like, some of the, the, the story strains, how they're, like, separated from one another, some of these characters are just not fucking interesting at all. Their journeys are not pertinent. And, and because it's, it's it's because you already know halfway through, spoilers, that these characters that Maliki is experiencing are not real, but rather they are narratives created by Diana Hunter in order to sort of obliquely, like, squirrel away her own memories um, in order to keep, like, the system being able to like access them so i'm not even really paying attention to the struggles of these characters but rather trying to obliquely look at what are their experiences analogous to that of this character and what i know of this character and not everything matches up in that way and, and it just it just takes away from who those characters are just to tell me that their their stories don't matter yeah. in that sort of way and then it has like a a a, a last act twist um, that just made me really go. I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Like, I almost closed the book and like left it because I thought it was bullshit. But I was like, "I've already come this far. I have to finish it." So, yeah, it was it was okay. Um, aside from that, I also rewatched Ex Machina. Uh, 
just on a whim. Yeah. I was like, I just saw it on Netflix, and I was just like, I'm, I'm going to rewatch this. Yeah. Like, and yeah, it's still a great movie. It's still uh, one of my favorite episodes that we recorded for this podcast. I and agree. Have you have you gotten a chance to rewatch Annihilation yet? I have not actually gotten the chance. To Neither have I. Even yeah. though I bought it. We Is, should all get together sometime and watch that. Yeah. I would do that. I actually ranked uh, Ex Machina a little bit higher than I did initially. I, I, you gave it a four and a half. I gave so it a four and a half. Yeah, that's a pretty big reach for you. Yeah, I know. I was like, I'm I, proud of you. Yeah, I was like, I. I enjoyed it just as much as i did the first time and i think that just that that's that's indicative of 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 meriting some like like ranking yeah that's that's a, for, that, that's a fantastic film yeah i also finished and this is my last thing is like oh I also no, you have another thing after this one but continue with this one okay uh i finished the second season of the good place because that was also on netflix it's a good show and it is fucking remarkable. I, I had been waiting until like the second season came on Netflix to watch yeah. it. Uh, and it's like, this is one of the most enjoyable shows that I've ever watched. And I'm looking forward to like, seeing more of it. I know that the third season is going to be premiering soon. So I'm looking forward to catching that whenever I can. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I, um, I watched that show week to week. And mm-hmm. I second season was great. I couldn't believe that... Uh, that they basically topped the first season, which I know. wasn't like perfect by any means. Right, but, but sometimes but the... like a freshman comedy that that's strong, you're just yeah. like, okay, it's gonna buckle under its own weight. And then like, no, it actually got better because they shed the fat of yeah. what was dragging even the first season down. Right, and, yeah, and God, the, one of the early episodes in season two where you see. We just drop in on like all the various snapshots of the experiments, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of like a Groundhog Day experience. Yeah, uh, was it was just fantastic. This is the bad place. <laughs> this yeah. is the bad place. Like it, it's it's wait, even Jason figured it out this even, time. Oh, I'm that just... this that one hurts <laughs> that this time. So yeah, good. yeah. Um, I didn't think that it could top like the the twists at the end of the first season, but I think that the ending for the second season is just a lot as... more dramatically powerful. Oh yeah, like or not dram- like emotionally mm-hmm. powerful because then it's just like oh like you know this is kind of yeah. what they've been talking about this whole time. Yeah. So it's like will will it even be like I don't know will it even work for? for it's that? a paradigm shift in that we I feel like we're really getting two seasons in we're finally getting into the show proper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, yeah. Uh, the other thing you wanted to talk about mm-hmm. was something you uh, made me, and I don't mean that in a bad way, mm-hmm. uh, go see him a theater. Yes. We went to go see – Nick and I went to go see Perfect Blue. Yep. That sounds kind of contentious from Nick. No, I'm – like, I want to talk about it, but I also yeah. know that, like, yeah. I, I'm throwing you a bone here. Yeah, thanks, so, man. So yeah. what did you think about rewatching a movie you liked and whatnot? I mean, it's Satoshi Kon's uh, first film. Uh, it's the first time that I was able to actually see it in theaters. Um, it's not available – like, widely available right now. And so I thought it was really Seems important. like that's about to change, though. I hope so. Yeah. I really, really hope so. And – I love this film for the matter of I, – I don't think it's perfect. I think that it might actually have soured a little bit in, in, in retrospect after having like seen it this time. Okay. But it still reminded me of the things that I liked about it in that it's such a – this is not something that I say about anime films, quite frankly. is like, but They're it's bad? A, no, it's a – there are bad anime films. That was a joke. Yeah, I was like – but what I, I didn't expect to – to come back to it is like and realize how almost prescient this film is when it when it comes to its commentary on the sort of confluence of celebrity and idol culture 
and fandom within the space of the internet and how the internet works to refract that relationship into something that is altogether more toxic and 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 destructive for both like components of that characters in this movie mm-hmm. don't know how the internet works and rightfully so because of that's when this movie came out yeah you know and somehow in the internet's infancy it predicted what the internet would look like at its zenith and i say zenith not necessarily trying to peg this current time in history but right. like I feel like we pretty much maxed out what we could do with the internet. Right. <laughs> and now we're starting to see all the fucking backwash. <laughs> right. Um, and it's kind of disgusting. But anyway, like even before people understood the internet, this movie came out and basically said, yeah, this is what will happen. And it, and it has. Yeah. It's really creepy. Um, yeah. As a first-time viewer, because I had never seen it, mm-hmm. I was blown away. I um, I told you, I think it's my first, my first, my favorite theatrically released anime film I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so nothing that's tied to like a show that had like an OVA or something yeah. like that. But um, just the a straight to not straight, but just a theatrically run anime film. I thought this was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's definitely my favorite of his because I've seen Paprika now, which I enjoyed. Yeah, but I thought this was just so wonderfully. It's more concise. Yeah, concise and executed. The editing in this is just amazing. Mm-hmm. You, you could write a million words on why one scene uh, cuts to another and in in what manner it does and, right. what, and what that says about what's happening. And yeah. Whatnot. So I, I absolutely loved it. He was one of the best anime directors of his time and like the fact that he died like the way that he did is like is just... Yeah. Yeah. He died of pancreatic cancer in, in 2010. He only directed like 10 films. No, he only directed four films in a television series um, and just like... You look back and it's like you. You look at something like Perfect Blue in theaters and you're like, "Fuck, man!" It's like we really, we really lost someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it sucks that we had had a lousy waiter at our dinner theater. And yeah, I'm calling <laughs> him out because he's an asshole. So what did he do? He was the one who wouldn't accept my credit card. Oh, yeah. Even though his card reader was broken. Yeah. And then he swiped the other credit card ten times. Then he goes, "See?" I'm like, "No." You didn't prove that your card yeah. reader works. You proved that you're an idiot. Yeah, he was kind of an ass. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> My turn? Yeah, yeah. your turn. <laughs> All right. I, I just want to talk about two things very quickly. One, I watched Support the Girls, which is the new Andrew Bajalski film. Bajalski. Who, yeah, or Bujalski. I don't know. Bujalski. Bujalski who made one of my favorite movies of 2013, which was called Computer Chess. Um, Mm. He's an indie director who's kind of, we've seen influence the likes of people like Sean Baker, who just do these kind of lo-fi movies where, yes, quote-unquote, nothing happens, but technically everything does. You know, it's all about the moments uh, that pass by. So he's a very... uh, Linklater? I was going to say, somebody who just... Let's people people's lives play out on camera. Absolutely, yeah. and yet you watch something like Support the Girls, and you, these the characters in this case the women uh, in front of the camera don't have passive lives. <laughs> so even though it's not like about one thing or one person, these are very vocal people and people who are just trying to make ends meet. And so the movie itself centers around. Um, a manager and her four, five, or six employees that work under her who work at a Hooters-like establishment. Mm-hmm. 
And, Shooters. Uh, no, <laughs> not quite. That would have been pretty good, though. But it, it's Hooters like, so you already know what obviously is expected of the waitresses and such. Hooters But it's also, uh, yes, Hooters esque. But it's also a local thing, too, so it's not even a franchise because there's also some commentary on a franchise that's moving in the neighborhood, which mm. might put them out of business. Mm. Kind of like Good Burger versus Mondo Burger, if you really think about it. Um, that's but, a. Yeah. Have you watched? How, when's the last time you watched that? Probably when I was like ten. We ought to rewatch that sometime. We should. I want to yeah. see how that ages. <laughs> I yeah, me too. Actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but support the girls. It's just so many great scenes. Uh, first of all, I just want to highlight some performances because that's pretty much what makes the movie. Regina yeah. Hall plays mm. the manager, and so as someone who grew up thinking that the scary movies, the the franchise, mm-hmm. not the uh, non-proper noun right. scary yeah. movies, yes. but the scary movies starting starring Anna Faris and Regina Hall. Those are like my favorite comedies at that when I was like twelve and thirteen. They're uh, good comic performers. They are, and so Regina Hall blew me away because she's very good in this, but also she's very dramatic and yeah. not in a. Like, you can kind of see what she was doing in those comedy movies earlier, which is just playing something ridiculously straight, you know, mm-hmm. with the, uh, I don't know, the fiery intensity of, like, a horror victim. Mm-hmm. But here, she just has to be this kind of mother hen to these lost souls and these girls who can't quite, well, some of them, at least, can't quite stand up for themselves because of the, their, you know, status, uh, social status, whatever. Um, some other people who are great in this, though, is Haley Lou Richardson okay. uh, from... Uh, Edge of Seventeen and whatever else I've seen her in, but now I'm forgetting. Um, and and in a bit role, but uh, also pretty funny, and also has a very interesting tie into the climax of the film, where things start to get a little depressing. Is the uh, girl from First Girl I loved mm. um, the, oh. the main girl, not the one that we've actually been seeing in other movies? Um, so. Yeah, the, those three and then a few other people that were great, and it was just never not uh, entertaining to watch because all these uh, actresses were fantastic, and it just it, it was never too depressing and never overtly comic, and it hit that sweet spot of just being something that flew by because it just showed me what another person's life looked like, and I always pretty much appreciate that in the movie so i hmm. definitely recommend support the girls if you can rent it uh which is pretty much available on all on demand stuff support really? support yeah. the girls support support the girls that is correct um the only other thing i want to mention is that recently and this might tie into a future thing we're doing uh recently i've been watching animated batman features ah! <laughs> yes um so i've found that i now like batman yeah Although I will say, I don't know if I like Batman as much as I like Gotham, and I'm not talking... Oh, <laughs> oh boy. I'm not talking about the uh, Fox TV show, oh. although I have been actually watching a couple episodes of that just out of curiosity. Fuck, this is a roller coaster. It is. Um, but uh, just the rogues gallery of, of citizens and villains um, of that city. So... If you would just say that you like the architecture, I, my brain would just explode with happiness I mean, I, right now. I do in certain people's versions. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, no one doesn't really nah. do anything nah, with, with really that particular uh, avenue or whatever. Um, so I've been watching some animated features, and I feel like this was the key in my brain that kind of turned it all on for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I still will probably never be enamored with Nolan's trilogy, so to speak, and I think that was kind of my biggest hurdle because I kept hearing some, not all, 
but some people say like this is Batman. That like, was the template of Batman. You know, whatever. And it's like whether you think that it or whether you think that or you don't. Myself, this is a good lesson. Like you should never let someone speak that and then take it for granted because I always kind of took that as like, well, if that's the template, then I don't like Batman, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Yeah. And it's really been in this medium that I don't even love, which is animation, mm-hmm. that I've started to understand Batman, Gotham, and what this entire mythos boils down to and, oh, yeah. and, and how it interacts. And I'm kind of doing all this to lead up to the Blu-ray release of uh, Batman the Animated Series, which Fuck. I know, which I am excited about. So I've been dabbling in some of the animated features, and I've been saving some of the better ones for last. So mm-hmm. I've kind of only watched some minor ones. But really quickly, I've watched Batman vs. the Dracula, which was a really dorky little, what I assume is like a Cartoon Network-esque. That one's based off of the the Cartoon Network revamp called The Batman. Okay, and that's what it felt like. I think it was but I also the Batman didn't dislike yeah. it. I actually thought it was okay and yeah. whatnot. Um, because it was horror-tinged, obviously, that's the one I start with, just hmm. because I thought that would be a good little entry point yeah. just to wet my toes. And I will say the Joker's design because he gets vamped out, was mm. pretty, actually, for being a kid's quote-unquote property, it was pretty creepy and mm. fun. Uh, I watched the Batman Return of the Caped Crusader, which is the uh, Adam West and Burt Ward reprising their roles in animated form. One of the last things you ever voice acted. Yeah, he's got a, I know they have one other one called Batman vs. Two-Face, where William Shatner voices Two-Face, and I'm uh, hunting that one down. But mm. I gotta say, uh, I thought half of this movie was great and the other half was not great. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that as like one and then followed by two, just like in general, like every other scene was hit or miss. I thought when it was capturing the tone of the 66 show, it was great. Like there are some laugh out loud moments when Batman and Robin are about to like cross the street and Batman points out that they're not by a crosswalk <laughs> and they need to get over and because jaywalking is a crime, you know, like when it, when it did that, it, I thought it really did capture that, you know, uh, peak of that show and before whatnot. You, before you became a full-on vigilante that broke people's bones and yes. drove over them with cars. Yes. And I love some of the outlandish stuff, like they go to space in this movie. So, like, of I was, I, yeah, I was very on board for that. Um, and the, the people that got to do, you know, quote-unquote Caesar's Rom- uh, Caesar Romero's Joker and Meredith's Penguin and whatnot were very good, uh, not copycats, because they, I think, made a point not to sound exactly like them, but in that same spirit. Yeah. Those were all great. I will say, and this is kind of unfortunate, so maybe I'm a dick, but I felt like Adam West was just a little past his prime. Mm. Like, Burt Ward hasn't skipped a day. Like, he was Boy Robin, even mm. at whatever age he is. And I, and I was tickled pink by that. Adam West, like, while I guess I wouldn't want it any other way, since that's what this property was, yeah. you know? Um there were a few times where I felt slightly embarrassed mm. for the project because I felt like it was probably like, the, you know, why would you tell him, oh, do that again? or You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, he did one take. Was that good? It's like, yeah, that was perfect. Right, because like, mm, there were moments when it? he was totally fine, but it never didn't feel like anything other than a very geriatric Batman, even though the animated form is supposed to be a regular Batman. So I felt that part was a little... Uncomfortable in some ways, uh, whatnot. Uh, yeah. The only other thing I watched in this uh, vein was Gotham by Gaslight, which I won't say too much because I feel like we may actually end up watching it as a group. But yeah. that was this year's uh, Batman animated movie in which it takes place during an Elseworld uh, alternate reality where it imagined. Uh, 
Gotham and Batman in a very Victorian-like setting where, you know, no electricity and whatnot, and he as he goes up against Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Based so on a comic by Mike McNola. What he just said. <laughs> and um, I thought it was actually pretty good. It wasn't, like, amazing, but as, like, a trifle, it was really fun. I thought Jennifer Carpenter was a great Selena Kyle to the point where, I actually, I would totally watch her. Like, I started thinking about that. I would watch her as a live-action Selena Kyle, too, because mm-hmm. I kind of think she's got the look down. So... Um, I thought she was fantastic. Everybody yeah. else was decent. Um, Bruce Greenwood, a little—he uh, was Batman. Okay, was a little. Once again, I—I uh, I feel weird that we're. What else has he done? He's done a lot of Star Wars things. Uh, oh, sorry, Star Trek. Uh-huh. Star Trek. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think. He's just kind of an old character actor uh-huh. who's been around. Um, and I will say it was kind of half murder mystery because you know the mystery is who is Jack the Ripper. Spoilers. I'm not saying who it is. But it is somebody that yeah. you know. That's yeah. that's all I'll say, obviously. Um, but the other half was just a pretty decently animated action adventure uh, flick. There's a scene in which Batman is fighting Jack the Ripper, um, you know, fist combat, whatever, mm-hmm. on top of a blimp in the pale moonlight, and it's oh. it's very even if it's yeah. cheap WB straight to DVD animation. Uh, it, it was very good looking. So, I actually recommend it for anyone who kind of... Moonlight, huh? Mm-hmm. So the Joker might be Jack the Ripper? The Joker is not in this movie. Oh. Like, I'm not even... Interesting spoiling. choice. <laughs> He's... Wait, what? Hmm? Wait, what'd you say? Oh, I'm just, It's a... Unless you meant to say that like that, if you just randomly said that like that, that's something that... I did. Randomly say it. Really? Yeah. What did I... What did I do? I'm very good. I know you know what I'm talking about. No. He wasn't even paying attention. So oh, okay. So. It was the no one part where my, my soul felt, like flew out of my body for a second. <laughs> yes, it's when Tucson wasn't paying attention. Um, in the 1989 Batman, mm-hmm. the Joker's main catchphrase is... You ever danced oh, the in the pale, pale moonlight. moonlight. You ever I gotcha. the devil in the pale yeah. moonlight. Uh yeah, no, I didn't mean that. Okay. But that is, I, I guess Since I Since it was in the same universe. I don't know why I said pale even, but <laughs> yes. the silhouettes are, the backdrop is the moon and, yeah. you know, whatever. There's a subconscious, like, yeah, I, mean, tr- yeah. I was going to say, it's Batman. Yeah. But, and I'm not spoiling or trying to trick you when I say the Joker is not in this. Either yeah. it's Penguin or it's in a lot of other famous, uh, it's more about the little cameos. I got you. It was just too close no, for yeah, me to I, not make a connection. Once you said that, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> anyway. so Right on. And if anyone wants a fun little trifle, I definitely recommend Gotham by Gaslight. Definitely. Good times. All right. So on this episode, we are going to talk about Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. And as we mentioned in the intro, the fourth film of Paul Thomas Anderson's career so far that we have talked about, uh, which we've talked about, There Will Be Blood, Magnolia, Magnolia, and Thin Thread. Somebody wasn't on the Phantom th- or wasn't on the There'll Be Blood episode. Was it you? Me. Was it you? I wasn't on that. Okay, episode. You you've think, been on every episode. You'd right? think I'd miss a Paul Thomas Anderson episode. No, but I couldn't remember. I know Kenny was here. He was. Yeah. No, yeah. I've been on every episode except ex- for the baseball episode. Correct. That was a good episode. But it's a bonus episode, so it's non-canonical. That is true. <laughs> we should do a bonus episode one of these days, just for fucking fun. Yeah. Just wild out a little bit. Okay, I'm down. Well, how would that be any different than every other day we... <laughs> oh, okay, I guess Come he's on. not going to be on the episode. Well, shit, I'm just asking. <laughs> you won't be invited. 
So Boogie Night centers around the story of a young man's adventures in the Californian pornography industry in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Well done, IMDb. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, that's accurate. It's yep. not very compelling, but it's accurate. So oh, in addition compelling. in addition to being directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, he also wrote this film. And this film also stars Mark Wahlberg as Eddie Adams, better or known as Dirk Dirk Diggler. Diggler. Yep. Uh, Burt Reynolds also here in a role that got him an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe win. And unfortunately, we picked this episode the night before he passed. So we're not trying to capitalize on celebrity death. I just want to put that out there. Yeah. Also, starting in this film, in addition to Burt Reynolds, who now is no longer with us, is Julianne Moore. And Luis Guzman, who is named Maurice Rodriguez. Not, Graham. not with the... Rodriguez. Rodriguez. <laughs> That's great, by the way. Yeah. Also, John John C. Riley, Don Cheadle, Heather Graham, and William H. Macy. And Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, I'm sorry. Almost forgot about Philip Seymour One of the best Hoffman. roles in this movie. Yeah. He has a, it's a pretty minor role, but yes. One of the, the best, best my guys. There are other people here, too, that are really movie. good. Like, Ricky Jay is in Ricky this. Jay's great. Phil uh, Baker Hall shows up. I was going to say, he makes an appearance. He's a simple man. He mm-hmm. likes butter in my ass and a lot of pop in my mouth. <laughs> that I don't know. That's just that me. conversation is, is, is something. So, usually when we talk about Paul Thomas Anderson films, Nick starts because he is a Paul Thomas Anderson aficionado. So I think we should stick with the same plan and go with you first, sir. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This is a movie. Yes. Okay, Tucson? <laughs> um, Nick? <laughs> wow, nice pass back there, bud. So, yeah, this is like my favorite director mm-hmm. making a movie about one of my favorite eras slash genres of filmmaking, which I'm not even exclusively talking about pornography, but exploitation cinema mm-hmm. of the 70s and uh, early 80s when all bets were off and there was no, uh, I don't know, there there was no limit to what the Hayes Code could possibly conceive mm-hmm. <laughs> in its wake. Um, the dawn of the home video revolution. Yeah. So here's the thing. It's interesting to watch now because this was the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie I ever watched way back when. Um, and so obviously I was enamored with the movie and enamored with the director, but it's so weird because I haven't watched it probably in a good five or six years, and a lot has happened to myself since then and to uh, PTA, <laughs> um, because I now have actually watched movies from this era, mm-hmm. the kind that they are making and the kind that they are uh, acting in and so on and the so forth. The kinds that have stories. That's correct. That can change people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's so weird because now I come from a completely different angle when mm-hmm. I watch this movie. So here's what I'll say. I like this movie a lot. I think it's fantastic. I, uh, Paul Thomas, Thomas Anderson knows how to make a movie. Every single performance in this movie is great. Like, what a bench here uh, from Marky Mark actually giving a good performance. However, right. it's a good performance based on Marky Mark himself. You know, like, it's, it's very much like he would have only given this performance if it was his debut starring role. You know what I mean? Like, th- this kind of thing only happens once in a whatever. I was going to say, it's a it's a good performance, like, 
name anyone who gets casted perfectly in a role that is made for them before right and before they have the 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 cash to like say no to things or you know uh have off uh i don't know off author like uh yeah before they can choose their roles yeah yeah or even like choose the roles, but then, like, have a little influence on what their character is going to be doing. Although, I will say, uh, knowing who Mark Wahlberg is today, it's not surprising that he ended up with this role and that he no. was fine with this. Where it's like, you're going to be a guy who's going to show off his body and do a bunch of bizarre karate moves, and you also have a obscenely large dick. Yeah. No, I mean, I... That's it's, basically it's not... me. Yeah. It's... Well, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Um, so no, but seriously though, the, the, the roster here of actors is just incredible and they're all fantastic. Um, I gotta say watching it as a exploration of the porn industry, it's incredibly <laughs> lacking. It's actually mm. kind of hilarious how this is at such a weird disconnect from the real industry itself. And I don't mean in like any real world, like, well, that's not how it happens right. or anything like that. But it goes out of its way to not place itself in its own era of Mm. filmmaking, which I find kind of weird. It only wants to be known as one of two things, depending on what section of the movie is, which is pre-video and after video. Like Those would be broad strokes. The only thing it wants to do. I I only really quickly Mm. heard two mentions of anything real life, which was at one point... Somebody, I believe, uh, Eddie, uh, shall we say Dirk, but before he became Dirk, mentions to Burt Reynolds that he did the um, Inside uh, Amber Waves series, which was actually a popular series, not Amber Waves, but Inside of an Insert a Porn Actress Name. That that was an actual series of pornographic films where if you liked you know, one of a particular uh, female star, Chances are she was going to get her own inside blank movie. So in this universe... uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, not quite. Different, but that's okay. Not quite. Um, But yeah, so in this universe, um, whatever his name is, now I'm blanking, uh, Burt Reynolds' character... Jack Horner? Jack Horner uh, is responsible for those, which, okay. And then at one point in the car ride when, uh, when... John C. Riley and Mark Wahlberg are trying to convince him to let them create uh, Brock Landers and Chess Rockwell. Um, it's weird because, and I think it's kind of intentional, but it's also kind of confusing. Mark Wahlberg's character says, we won't be like those uh, Johnny Wad films, which is weird because, A, there's no real real-life analog going on in this movie, right. except maybe you could draw a comparison to the fact that what... Uh, Dirk is to uh, Jack uh, is basically a Bob Chin, who's a film, famous uh, adult film director slash uh, Johnny Wad collaboration. He was known for having the big dick in the industry, and they got together. His name is John Holmes, but uh, his nickname was Johnny Wad for obvious reasons. And they made a bunch of movies, uh, which were the Johnny Wad crime movies. And, and that's <laughs> clearly what the influence here is. So it's weird for PTA to write in his group, we won't be like those movies, but then also like your entire uh, middle section of your film is based on clearly that. And I feel like it's kind of half a joke, but also kind of half a weird lady reference. Anyway. I'm Have just... your cake and eat it too. Yeah. yeah. What I was going to mention. Yes. 
is that do you feel like at all that since it seems like at the time this got made that this film was very much kind of taboo? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the 90s. And to, uh, because obviously this is before the uh, internet porn explosion. And at the same time, uh, this is only Paul Thomas Hensner's second film, so oh, he obviously I mean, doesn't have the same pull that he has now. I mean, yeah, <sighs> I'm pretty much listing off the things I don't like, and not even don't like, but just things I'm kind of like aware of now. Mm. Before I get into a gush fest, because I genuinely okay. think this movie is fantastic. Okay, but because you two are probably not going to, I would assume, like volley back and forth with some of these talking points right. that I have. You know, at the outset, right. I'm moving past them. Okay. I, I, I was just trying to retort some of the things you were saying oh, because yeah. I, I think that... And I agree with that. I think you're valid, but at the same time, I think there's obvious reasons why they don't exist. Absolutely, yeah. which I totally get. I just think it's... I, I guess the only reason why I feel like there's there's a slight cop-out to that is that Paul Thomas Anderson himself watched watches porn. He's been on record saying that he loves that era and whatnot um so i guess i was uh you know for being a maverick filmmaker it's it it is a very boilerplate film it is just a hollywood satire of rise and fall you know actor story mm-hmm. the the only thing he did was he put it in the universe of porn filmmaking which is novel uh mm-hmm. because no one else did it before he did it he and may no one... be an auteur filmmaker but he's kind of vanilla kind of basic in his uh I just mean in the stories. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I would not say that about PTA. Um, but getting to the movie on hand, uh, for what it is, it's fantastic. Uh, it's it, He's got already, at his, at his second film, such a masterfully uh, deft hand at editing. And even if he's lifting from his heroes, I, I don't give a fuck because... That's there's a way to steal and there's a way to learn from and mm-hmm. I think that's what he's doing. The, the he latter. made it his own. Yeah, and um, I, I just think this movie's hilarious. It's one of the funniest slash. It's one of the funniest bleak movies I've ever seen. Like there are laugh out loud moments in this because of how wonderfully written it is and how these performers are so game. And yet the movie is never not one of the most despairing. Uh, yeah. stories ever told. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting that he went from this to Magnolia because Magnolia is seriously just straight up depressing pretty much from start to finish. Yeah. Where this is uh, a weird film that goes from like, it's almost like going from a high. Like it's going from, this is really fun to, oh. This is not fun this anymore. Is, this is not good. We're trapped in a room with Alfred Molina and a mustache, and he has free basing and a shotgun, and we need to get out of here. Because, a little Asian boy keeps on throwing firecrackers. Because our friend the Punisher is going to go rogue yeah. <laughs> on us. As the Punisher does. <laughs> yeah, well, this was, a, this was a different time for the Punisher. He had a very large mustache then. So. That's true. <laughs> I mean, he had his own show about having a big dick, right? He did. Hung. I actually, I actually enjoyed that show. I never watched it. Him and Jane Adams. That was a that was a pretty it, good show. What show? It's called Hun. It was on uh, HBO. It, I think it had two seasons only. Yeah. Maybe three. Two or three. Yeah. Uh, it was not the greatest show, but uh, the idea it of hung a, in there. <laughs> the idea of a female pimp in this in this day and age, and uh, the reversal of it as she's kind of this person who's just taking advantage of the industry and. Uh, Really, Thomas Jane has no talents whatsoever. 
He's it's actually very similar to something like Dirk Diggler, oh, yeah. where he's got nothing going on. Everybody and this got is, that one special thing. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah. yeah, it's actually not that bad of a show. I watched probably maybe like twelve episodes of it throughout its run, and it was not bad. Yeah. yeah. So I'll just wrap it up by saying I I genuinely love this movie. I only preface what I said now with what I said earlier, just because I'm fascinated by this. Uh, era and industry as a whole, so I'm I'm not going to let it like go uncommented on. Mm-hmm. But if anyone wants some supplemental viewing or reading, something mm-hmm. that will give you an actual frame of reference, yeah, would be uh, a book called The Other Hollywood, mm-hmm. which is an oral history as told by like every uh, living uh, filmmaker and actor and actress from that era, including cops that investigated them. Like it, it is That's so encompassing. And it proves that the one thing this movie does get right is the decadence. Like, that is not exaggerated in, the, in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that is, like, if anything, it was worse in real life. Oh, yeah. It probably was in Boogie Nights itself. Because mm. uh, I didn't see any animals getting fucked in Boogie Nights or uh, on-set orgies happening, derailing productions and whatnot. You only saw one girl overdose from a, from a Coke. Two. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because there was uh, the first one of an... Um, there was a second time when, oh, because he does it. Mm. Even though he's the one who walks in on the first guy, yeah. later on it's him who technically mm. uh, does it to his underage uh, yeah. person. And yeah. Also, I love that line from the first guy when he's like, that's twice this week that some chick is OD'd on me, man. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so anyway, I was going to say The Other Hollywood as a book, which is great. If you don't want to read, uh, watch Right now, HBO's The Deuce, created by David Simon, which is a far more cemented in a real-world version uh, with actual clear references to what was happening at the time and how it was happening, especially because California is great, and yes, porns were shot there, but New York was pretty much where it was at. Like That's where porn grew, was started, and in a lot of ways, was, like, the central hub. I mean, that's where the theaters were. Yeah, I mean, that's 42nd Street literally that, was... That's where Deep Throat happened, too, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, um, you, you haven't seen any look into the porn industry until you've seen random apartment buildings being turned into porn sets. Uh, very shambly. So, mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, but I'm excited to talk about this movie mm-hmm. as I hear from you guys what you thought. So... I'm a fan of this, uh, although I think that There Will Be Blood is a better film and is my favorite from Paul Thomas Anderson. This will always be the first Paul Thomas Anderson film I truly, really enjoyed. Um, and I, I've said this before, um, and I'll keep saying it, this is the kind of filmmaking that I would like him to get back to, not because his current films are bad, this kind of filmmaking is something that is so much um, palatable. Yeah, I, I don't even necessarily know if I'd use that word, but it's 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 just it's so much easier to digest for an audience member who doesn't love every part of what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing. Yeah, because there's enough flashes of what I would call my Paul versus your Paul. <laughs> um, like for example. This movie is so heavily influenced by Scorsese, and your favorite movie of all time is Casino. So anyone who loves uh, 
Scorsese in general should have an easy time at the movies with this because it is so indebted to him mm-hmm. as a filmmaker. And yet there are still flourishes of things like at the Alfred Molina uh, drug deal scene where Paul just rests on Mark Wahlberg's face for an uninterrupted one minute for no discernible reason. Yeah, nothing comes of that, no, really. but... Yeah. It's kind of sublime, so... Anyway. And there's nothing wrong with that, huh? but I feel like um, that's kind of where he's lost me a little bit with some of his recent films, which obviously are not bad, but they just are no, not the not. kind of... Okay, Jesus, Nick. Uh, they are not the films that are my favorite of his, and this is at the very tippy-top, along with There Will Be Blood for Me. Hmm. Uh, I think this film is just wonderfully done. It has so many fantastic performances... Burt Reynolds, who was acclaimed in this film, is probably the fifth best acting performance here for me. Mm. Even though I think he's good. Um, he's perfectly casted. He is. I mean, that's the big thing. He is. And, and, and he fits right in. But looking at it from a lawn view, um, Julianne Moore, I always think, is underrated in almost oh, yes. everything she's in. And she's, she's fucking fantastic here. Uh, Mark Wahlberg is good here. I actually think Thomas Jane is fan-fucking-tastic in this film. Uh, and also, too, although I'm not a huge fan of him in, in usual, I think John C. Riley is perfectly cast in this film. I was going to say, this is easily my maybe my favorite role of his, if not top three or something. I mean, the idea of him being a comedic actor in a comedic role, mm. uh, but in this just weird, almost like eastbound and down situation where he's just this this guy who is going nowhere fast but thinks he's the greatest thing in the world is such a weird just pulling at the seams moment and john c Riley perfectly inhabits that and that's why this film is great because burt reynolds who got the most acclaim out of anybody in this film i don't think is the best part of it and 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 that's not saying he's bad i just think there are people who are doing even better work than he is here. And it's in a story that just works so well within itself. I mean, the rise and fall of this story is basically, I mean, you mentioned Casino already, but you could look at any other really good gangster film. Um, a film that, that I would think of is similar and not because of necessarily the content, but of the way that the structure goes is something like Scarface, where you see coming from nothing to rise to the top, and then you see it just completely all just fall apart. Um, Speaking of, really quick, mm -hmm. that's also another reason, sorry, but I'm just going to say this one more time since you're making it almost abundantly clear. Uh, Something that the Deuce, the HBO show, portrays is that we would not have a porn industry without gangsters because the mafia is actually who single-handedly financed porn before it was legal. Who else would? Pedophiles. Well, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. You know, sometimes uh, it, was a, it's a, it was just a Venn diagram that was, in fact, a circle. Yeah. But it was because of the mafias, like, trying to do contraband things. And then it became a surplus on the street of, like, well, if everybody's watching it, then it's clearly not. But anyway, I just think it's funny because the gangster mafia analogy, besides just being PTA hearkening back to Scorsese, is also deeply felt in this movie even if you never actually see a single gangster in this but yeah. like you can't have this without that no and and i actually agree with what you're saying i mean i i think the connection is is very much there even though even though 
there are no gangster porns that they do in this film. Um, but the the rise and fall and the story of how Dirk Diggler becomes important and then falls off. Um, and the other person who gives a fantastic performance here is Don Cheadle, by the way, yeah. uh, who is almost, I don't want to say he's clueless, but this film portrays him as it's very odd to be a black man in the porn industry who's trying to get out of being black it's and even, also get out of being a porn actor at the yeah. same time. It's even odder to be a black man in the porn industry with a built-in persona as a cowboy. Yeah, and I'm trying to wrestle with what PTA was doing with Bucky Barnes because I love that character. So like I'm not even trying to say like it went wrong or anything like that, but I can't tell if it's a reaction to the fact that there was barely any black actors in porn and or when there was that they were always exoticized to begin with. Uh, you know, like I mentioned on our Sorry to Bother You episode, Johnny Keyes, who just died this year, rest mm-hmm. in peace, uh, was probably the most famous African-American porn actor. And his most famous role is Behind the Green Door, in which a white woman goes through a series of doors, mm-hmm. and she's rewarded with what's behind the green door at the end, which is a black man. And it's very much, even though it's a groundbreaking film, that's obviously a problematic, <laughs> uh, quote-unquote, fantasy in and yeah. of itself. Uh, to, to treat The exotic it, to, property. Yeah, to treat it like as such. So, you know, I'm curious to know. I, I would That would be something I genuinely want to know from PTA if I ever got to ask him random questions about his film is that was he just trying to reinvent history in a fun way or was it actually some kind of reaction to that because it's very much sticks out like a sore thumb uh in a very fun way well the next time you go to sundance and you see one of his films you can just ask him in the q a he's too big for sundance yeah he'll never go to sundance (laughs) i mean if he did i'd be there right yeah i don't care if i went the year before i'd be like oh okay yeah well, and it, there's just so much here that you could just enjoy. And as I was telling Toussaint earlier before we started recording, uh, this film to me is fascinating because of how unable these characters are able to be people in society. They, they are not able to have relationships outside of the porn circle. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating and it's not necessarily because they're choosing to not be able to. Either society is forcing them to not be able to just be normal people. Or they just can't. They cannot physically have relationships with people outside of the porn industry. And Persona is, non grata. There's not. There's, there's, no, there's no separation. There's no, there's no way to move away from the stigma that you are a porn actor. And that is something that is interesting throughout this film, and that's why I think this is a film that I like so much, and I think that PTA has done almost his best work in this film because he shows you the highs and the lows of handing your life over to this industry. Hmm. That, yes, there can be benefits, and you can have joy here, but at the end of the day... Uh, this is going to stick with you for the rest of your life like being a Nazi. Yeah, I mean, the sentiment of, of, of not being able to move on from 
that life into, I guess we could characterize it as civilian life. If I want to want to say that way, I mean, like you, can't, I you mean, can't really, Julian Moore can't even have visitation rights right. with her child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, and not that she should necessarily either, because mm-hmm. that's that's part of the storyline that we really right. are kept away from. Yeah. Well, that's why you, you're treated to two different versions of that. You're treated to her version and Bucky's version, and it's like in her version, it makes sense. There's this complicated mix of like, oh, you're discriminating against me because you know you don't approve of my lifestyle. It's like, well, no, you might genuinely be an accidental. Harm. Right. I say accidental because she would never actually want to harm right, her right. children, but. Right. You know, you're whatever. Whereas, like, Bucky Barnes being denied a loan makes no sense whatsoever no, other no. than for dramatic inertia, which is totally fine. And there are – there's actually layers to that scene, in my opinion, because it's not just that he's there and he's a known pornographer, uh, but he also is in an interracial relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's just – yeah. And I'm with you there, but I also – you know, it's interesting the film doesn't make mention of that, which – is either means that we need to give the film even more credit because it's just letting it exist, or is that really a component of what's happening? Like, I don't know. I, I go like back I, and forth. I feel like there's no way it can't be. Which I'm with you in the sense that that makes sense to me. But mm-hmm. I could see an argument of, like, you know, it. I, I could. Uh, we're projecting that. that. And I say me and you. It could be. I'll put it this way um, He didn't need to have to be in an interracial relationship. But that was pretty much they have an even more obvious reason to deny him now. Yeah. Mm, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. It, it just there's just so much wonderful filmmaking that happens happens here, and really there is a lot of enjoyable parts of this film, and then there's a lot of depressing parts of this film, and that it happens in the tone that is happening at that time in the film, and that's what's. So wonderful about this film. Um, and so many of the characters just completely embody what their character is. And uh, it just ends in a great place with a wonderful PTA montage, which he's gotten away from a bit. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing that I you know, would like him to at some point come back to. That's why I said when we watched The Leftovers, uh, the season three uh, penultimate episode, with the montage with... God only knows is basically when I think about that song, I can't unsee the final montage in this movie and now the leftover scene, but most predominantly the, this movie. For me, at least, God always, God only knows is always going to be at least Bioshock Infinite for me. But I, I, you know, some people would say it would be. Um, God, what was that show about polygamy? Uh, big, big love. Big love. Yeah, that was the theme song to that mm. show. Anyway. Hmm. Tucson. So my initial thoughts. You guys have already covered a lot of ground between the two of you. Um, I'm going to try to thread my observations and my reactions to this film throughout that. There's a lot that I want to talk about, but I'm going to try and like condense as much as possible. Um, so this is Paul Thomas Anderson's second film. I was totally blown away by this. I have never seen it before. I have heard of it, and I never really had access to be able to watch it until now or even inkling to watch it until now. Uh, and I knew that it had something to do with the origins of like the porn industry and like San Francisco and have Mark Wahlberg and Burt Reynolds and stuff like that. But I was not ready for how capable of a film this was. I would have suspected this would be like 
like the fourth film from our director. I didn't think this would be like like the sophomore effort of a of a of a new time. Usually, you do this at the top of your game, right? Not when you're learning your craft, right? This is pretty. This is pretty unconventional. But then again, PTA is a pretty unconventional like filmmaker in his own right. Um, all the performances in this were incredible. I loved Mark Wahlberg, which I did not ever think I would ever say. He's just not that kind of actor that I would ever be enamored with. But he was really, really good in this. Burt Reynolds, I did a little bit of research about him and his history with this. I know that he, in his life, fucking hated this film and yeah. fucking hated Paul Thomas Anderson. Yep. Refused to see this film to the day he died. And that but he was is, all, is a fucking grudge. But he was all for being in striptease? I didn't know about that, but you know, yeah. it, it's oh, fucking Burt Reynolds. That know? is a different performance. Oh, See, I, the thing about Boogie Nights and Burt hmm. Reynolds and PTA is that... He just doesn't like the guy. He doesn't like the guy, but also he has to realize that that's why he was casted. He was casted to be a hot shot aging person. Well, he's not going to realize anything now because he's well, dead. That is wow. very true. Um, Jesus, but he clearly did not like the idea of a 26-year-old maverick, quote-unquote, uh, young film director who's never done a studio film before telling him what to do because right. he's got this clear of a vision, which right. we now see in his totality is correct and, right. <laughs> and spot on. And so for him, and that's why I've heard that they've gotten in, well, that they got close to, like, fights and right. whatnot. Uh, but it's, it's two very strong personalities that were sort of... But that's also what makes his performance great, because he's also kind of leading into that. And mm -hmm. he, I think that's the reason why PATA wanted him and also kept him. Like, yeah. because he's like, yeah, I, I don't care if we're about to hit each other. At least when I roll, you're going to be that sad sack of a, mm -hmm. you know, pathetic whatever. And so... At the same time, though, uh, it is interesting that it's played that Burt Reynolds is the person who has his shit together the most, but he does play the well, pimp in this weird. As much as, as much as one can have their shit together, but in also, this and world. I think PTA, even when they were about to have blows, I'm sure is that I'm sure PTA did have a grudging respect for Burt Reynolds. It right. wasn't like a, he wanted to make a mockery of him. I just think he was like, you would be the perfect person yeah. because you haven't done much recently, and yet you were a titan in this industry. He turned down this role, I think, at least like three times, and then after he got done with it, he actually fired his agent, so maybe that's... <laughs> um, but, but Jack Horner's character, just to finish off what I was saying, is really the only person who is comfortable with his place, mm -hmm. and... He just allows all the success just to come in, yeah. Because he's the only person who basically gets away out of this film unscathed that yeah. we see. Yeah, because he knows what he wants and yeah. he'll do it. Um, moving on from Burt Reynolds, and he I... doesn't diddle kids. Yeah. Um, moving on from Burt Reynolds, uh, John C. Riley. I was so fucking surprised to see him in this. I did like a double take, and he is absolutely perfectly casted in this. Like as like, the film goes on, too, he gets better. Right. Like oh, like man. as you said before, um, Alex. Like he's like seeing him as a comedic actor in a comedic roles. Like you you expect that, but I was sort of enamored with his faux alpha male posturing that he always feels like he has to like prove something across anyone he's next to. He's like, how much do you bench? 
a, it goes as far to a dive into a swimming pool and yes. party. Yes. Yes. And it, like, uh, you, in the, and I totally recognize that because I've I've known guys like that. I've met guys like that. Like that was played perfectly to a T. Like there, there's some inherent like insecurity that is so deep seated that they feel like the only way to compensate for it is to sort of like pass it off to others in this I, way. I will say really quick, and mm-hmm. this is because I've been watching Batman, but <laughs> I, I get a real serious Boy Wonder vibe from him. Yeah. And the way he treats others, and of course uh, when it eventually becomes uh, Dirk Diggler, who mm-hmm. then becomes the main person, but just the whole like, um, just, you know, looking up like, oh, gee, shucks, who, you know, he didn't mean anything by that, mm-hmm. or when um, Mark Wahlberg uh, storms off in that final fight between him and Jack, and he randomly is, like, following after he him. Like, yeah, him. he's like, oh, don't worry, Jack, I'm gonna have this all figured out, whatever, and that's, like, the end of the beginning, or the beginning of the end, or whatever. Yeah, um, there are better parts of this film, but to me, this film peaks uh, with his bad interview on the Amber Waves documentary about... Uh, Mark Wahlberg? Yes. Yeah. Uh, where he's giving that just stoned interview where he's like, you know, if it could save the world, if I stop fucking, I'll stop fucking. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. I'm like, God, this guy is... He's like doing a behind-the-scenes story on E before it even so <laughs> before E even existed. That passage in the movie is actually a recreation of one of Paul Thomas Anderson's school films, like when he was a student in film yeah. school. He made the Life and Times of Dirk Diggler mm. as a twenty-minute film in which. It was this faux documentary back when that was barely a thing. Obviously, Spinal Tap and Come Out and whatnot, and uh, Christopher Guest had done Waiting for Guffman. But in general, that was still in his infancy. And that was his short film was, what, what would a porn star do and say, you know, in this kind of closed session interview? Was Mark Wahlberg? No. No. Okay. No, it maybe. I no, don't know. It, for, it was a student film. I think it was, well, I mean, I know it was a student film. I want to say no for sure. But I also would say maybe there's a one percent chance it had this. But it's no matter what, it's a recreation. He didn't use any of the actual footage from that film itself. Um, I only say that because technically his student film for that it was not by okay. The way. But the one he did for Hard Eight, which was called Coffee and Cigarettes, did star John C. Riley and Philip uh, Baker Hall. So hmm. that's, there is precedent set for him getting access to certain people. Anyway. But anyway, he did this 20-minute film that was this uh, fake documentary about the life and times of a porn star who is trying to, like, justify his work and uh, the self-important hubris that comes with that. So it's it's kind of funny how Boogie Nights itself was inspired by this property that he did, but he also found time to, like, just insert it, too. Um, and that's kind of what this film is in a nutshell. It's very indulgent, but anyway. Yeah. Um, another performance that I enjoyed was Julian Moore. Like, mm-hmm. she... I already loved her in in Magnolia. I absolutely loved her in this as well too. It's like I just think that she, I I don't know. It's like I don't know much about her as an actress. Like I've seen her in roles like similar to this, but she's never really stood out to me until like these like sort of like films before until like Paul Thomas Anderson roles. Like she really does shine um, in this film. Another person that I really enjoyed was William H. Macy. <laughs> yes. That entire dynamic. Um, She's got an ass in her cock. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, the... Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> um, did you know about that was a messed up line that they kept in the movie? I'm sure they did. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, was that's... supposed to say it regularly. Like, he, she's got a, a cock in her ass. Yeah. But because he just he, messed he's, up he's so, like, in flustered. Yeah. 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 He, Paul Thomas Anderson loved it. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's absolutely perfect. What's his name? Little Bill? Yes. Yeah. Little Bill. Like, the the whole relationship of that is, like, it... it, it ties back to what you Alex and Nick were talking about in that these characters just cannot go back to a normal life and they can't have normal relationships. Like I think when I was watching that and I saw how this man was being like disrespected by his wife and by the entire community of, of people Played by pornography actress, um, Nina Hartley. By the yeah. Way. Yeah. yeah. How he's just sort of implicitly being disrespected like to his face and it was like it was just it was just the thing that they do they're just swingers and i was just like man it's like there's a way that this relationship could have worked like if they had like a healthy like polygamist like polycule like 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 dynamic like if like had only one of them read like the ethical slut maybe they could actually like make this thing work but they they can't that, that it, there's there's nothing like that back back then and then it just leads to this tragedy but the the interesting part of this yeah. is that is it really her fault though? Because she's probably a porn actress, and this is. <sighs> so a, here, here's what you're saying. Uh, yeah. On the one hand, I feel like I want to just clarify the way you're wording it, which is not to say that she's like should be able to do what she wants because of that. Mm. So I'm saying, but I know what you're saying, which is actually, if you read things about this time that was a common thing which is that but here's the thing most of it was consensual relationship it was the idea that when we go home but she didn't play by those rules either because when he literally gets home from a hard day so i feel like i feel like this this could have been averted had these characters only like like the party scene is just funny right because technically that's the kind of thing that did happen back then and you know like you know what you're getting into, but it's always—it's also funny, not funny, but it's, it's a little funny. Funny slash tragic that every time we see any interaction, it is when she's having sex with somebody else. So the audience is to think nothing else other oh, than right. she's just off finding dick at every yeah. corner. I mean, <laughs> maybe I say this because, like, I—I have—I um, have friends who are in similar relationships to this so it's more of like i'm learning peripherally about sort of these these sort of things and it's like you know you, you, you you're kind of shocked at first but then you like the more that you learn about it and you have like them talk to you about it and I'm just like yeah it seems to like work and it's like I, I could see how like a dynamic could work like that it just didn't work in this case and that's what is inherently most tragic but, but about the, the, it the dynamic yeah. and this gets to what nick is saying is that one of the parties is not down with this yes right. that's what i'm saying and that's and the thing that, is he's yeah. not made for this yes. basically right right and 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 that that's really the the inherent tragedy of that character um one thing i wanted to circle back on uh, was not he like half smile before he shoots himself? Yeah, that's so creepy. Yeah, he's I know. Kind yeah. of into the display he's about to make because yeah. like Absolutely. he's been quote unquote emasculated right. at every turn, but yeah. now he gets and, to ruin everybody's turn of the century. And yeah, it does say something about Burt Reynolds' character that he has a very prominent painting when he walks down the hall at the end of the film. I thought that was touching. Yeah, um, it is, but. It, Personally, it, because a it's not a painting; it's an oil painting done by what's her name. So Roller that's girl? is it really? Yeah, no, it's uh, Don no. Cheadle's 
girl. I forget what her name is, but yeah. they make jokes to it. So and I she, thought it was you, you were saying she's the girl from Magnolia. Right? She is. That's Melora yeah. Walters who plays uh, Claudia, the cocaine addict. Okay, and, uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, continue. So wrapping this up, like what I wanted to circle back to is when I was initially watching this film. Uh, I texted the the group chat for for Film Tank, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm watching Boogie Nights right now." I was like, "This film is so fucking depressing," and I didn't know that there was an explicit like influence of Scorsese in this, but I could feel that just watching the film. I'm just like, "Man, this is just going to end in tears." Like, I I wouldn't be surprised if it ended in a fucking gunfight and somebody died. And lo and behold, oh my god, there was a gunfight, and that was fucking incredible. It the it's just so it's just so well paced and it's so well put together and it does feel like something that is adjacent to like goodfellas like i it, it's 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 remarkable it's a yeah. it's a really really great film yeah. go ahead i was going to say i wanted to mention two things so the first thing is i want to talk about philip seymour hoffman in this movie as scotty cuz that's easily so fucking stupid <laughs> that's easily in my Maybe my favorite performance in this entire movie. Uh, I feel like he's the only one, and I don't mean this as a to put down any of the other actors, but he is transcending his materials. Because on the one hand, he's playing a very doofy archetype. You know, like he is this uncool and very socially anxious nerd who is pining, uh, uh, closeted, not closeted, well, somewhat closeted. I think he's closeted. Homosexual. And uh, I don't know why he, I just he, said that. He isn't like closeted Nixon. to the audience, but he's closeted to the people he's inhabiting the story with. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Um, but, the way he, but the way he lingers in the background, it makes him, for me, the most tragic character. Not because he's necessarily dealing with the heaviest stuff of everybody, obviously, but I just feel for him from frame one to you know, the last time we ever see him. The scene in which he shows Dirk his car is one of the most brutal things I've yeah. ever seen. Uh, mostly because of the two acts that's happened. The one with him actually trying to kiss Dirk and Dirk uh, rebuffing Rebuking. him. Yeah. And I will say in a weirdly, but also authentically, in a weirdly restrained way, like he doesn't call him like a slur and like he's disgusted because sometimes that's just what you are when you you know a person I mean, in you, that moment a when person you're when high you and yeah and a person when you didn't think makes a move you. on you yeah when you're you, just like what you, the hell you are you doing you, you didn't precipitate that at all yeah so kudos i think to pta for not going a more cliched route mm-hmm. of you know having him go after certain other things whatever um but then the second act of that, after Dirk leaves and he's just left by himself, which you have to think is basically Scotty 24-7. It's just by himself. That thinking just lingers out loud. on a little too long. And for, yeah. Well, well for, for it, it is showing you how uncomfortable it should be. Yeah. And yeah. him just telling himself that he's so fucking stupid over and over is just one of the most gut-wrenching things ever. And I love that we never get any follow-up on that not because we need a follow-up on that but we don't even check in with like scotty's mental health from that point forward he's just always in the background still vying for like attention Mm -hmm. and just any kind of uh you know validation i find it very interesting because i have never previously made this connection up until the last time i watched boogie nights which was last weekend with nick but um that's me very good that's nick yes there is a somewhat 
uncanny connection between his character, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in this film, and his character of Dusty in Twister. Not necessarily because of their character's situation, but because, A, these films were made in close proximity to each other, and the fact that, in terms of story-wise, those characters really have no reason to be there other than to be that character in this story. And it's 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 kind of okay. bizarre. I'll and give I, you that. I, I, was gonna I say, thought you were going to say something like, no, no. oh, they have the same limp on the right no. leg. No, uh, that's not what I'm going but, for. No, this was definitely that but, era of the Philip Seymour Hoffman. But it is him being there just to be that character. And it is interesting because it is in the same, like, two-year stretch. And yet both characters are so different and yet so wonderful for different reasons. Because yeah. I don't know how much you guys like Twister or if you've I seen like Twister, Twister recently. But uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is giving a fantastic performance in that film. He is. And he's doing a lot of work there. I kind of forget, like, all the lines I like, but when I watch that movie, some of his line readings are ridiculous. He's going into the suck zone. That and there's something about when he says about either what he's eating or... I can't can't remember, but there's something weird about the way Philip Seymour Hoffman says something about... um, like the feast that they're about to have. And it's just anyway. Well, and the, the other thing is when he's talking to uh, Bill Paxton's girlfriend or fiance, I believe it is, uh, who's actually the girl from Seinfeld who says they're real and they're spectacular. Terry Hatcher. Yes. Uh, when he has a, a pretty famous line when they're driving into the tornado and she's like screaming, he turns around her and says to her, this is the fun part, sweetheart. Um, that character has no business being in a storm chaser group as he's fumbling with an umbrella and driving a piece of shit car. But yet he's just there. But it's a Hollywood movie. So you need that. Yes. But in, in the same token, he has no business being in the porn industry. Like, he's just there to be a guy, to be an extra who can hold lights because he wants to be there. Well, and also because you didn't, you, you just took who would do it. That's true. But <laughs> you know, it's the same thing for with those Storm Chasers, rules. probably, Well, right? yeah, exactly. No, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, behind the camera, at yeah. least. Yeah, um, it, 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 it's a bit of a tangent, but it's a, it's yeah. a fun little connection I made. Um, Julia Moore's character, Tucson hit on, and so did I. But she is probably the best part of this film for me. Yeah. Just because I love all of the different avenues her character goes through. And Julianne Moore is a fantastic actress because um, she's got, she just seems like a somewhat normal person on the outset. Like, she is not... Not that she's not attractive, but she's not the most beautiful woman. She's not doesn't have the biggest breasts. She doesn't, you know, have the most showy personality. She just seems like she's grounded. Yeah, she just seems like a person who is a drug addict who ended up in this situation um, and is good at doing what she does uh, to get by. Yeah, and it's just very interesting that we see her. Weird relationship with Burt Reynolds. We see her really bizarre mother relationship with Mark Wahlberg. And then when she goes back into the actual uh, family that she has in real life, it's just a complete disaster. 
And it's um, it's actually fascinating that scene in the court. She's got no shot. Yeah. She there's nothing. She could say that she's a multi billionaire now, and it wouldn't matter yeah. because everyone has made up their mind about her. And um, she she brought nothing to the table to counteract that. And it's just it's heartbreaking, and at the same time, um, it is intriguing. I will say for her character, nobody in this movie is, has any kind of real life analog in the actual industry. But I will say that Julianne Moore's character of Amber Waves is the only character who I actually kind of get a vibe of somebody that does exist, which would be Annette Haven. Uh, hmm. who, oh, yep. yep. That look, totally looks At least like from her. the look, yeah. Yeah, and the name. Uh, Annette, look up Annette Haven. Yeah, Annette, she looks like her. Haven, Amber Waite, like, I don't know, I feel like there's something there. Anyway, that's me reading into it. Um, another scene I do want to talk about is what I call nothing, but... <laughs> I was, Thank you. I thought maybe I had some kind of weird name for it, but I don't. Mm-hmm. But the scene in which it starts with the very dour uh, section where everybody's at their lowest point, uh, which is Jack and Roller Girl in the limo. Oh god! Oh yeah, that's the lowest point. That that's an interesting scene to me because, and I like other things that happen there, like the Mark Wahlberg scenes, okay, and uh, the Don Cheadle scene is pretty funny and also dark and whatnot. But that scene uh, is is so interesting to me because on the one, on there's there's a lot of things happening. One, it's an extremely depressing look at you know how to try to breathe some life into this business that you're it, not you're not seeing eye to eye with basically it even has the the complete look of it like it is is a like home video yeah. camera that you're looking yeah. through and it's just you see the grain of the VHS tape and whatnot and, and even Burt Reynolds Burt Reynolds is gone he's given up yeah. so much he's wearing a fucking tuxedo in this he's shit get, like, and he's, but he's also giving a very Burt Reynolds half-assed performance in a way that he's not doing when he you know in the earlier sections and whatnot because um, the way he's like we're capturing it live on videotape this is, this is on history. videotape this, this is history <laughs> yeah I think the on-videotape line is actually a fantastic line to remember, by the way. Um, and then for Roller Girl, you know, it's so interesting because I remember... Do we it, see, by the way, if she has roller skates on in that scene? She does? Yes, because okay. she rolls out of the limo. Oh, to, yes. Remember, she yep, yep, you yep, know, yep. curb stomps, yep. you know, whatever. Um, so what's interesting about that scene is that I remember when I was rewatching this, I was like, oh... When we got to earlier in the movie to her school scenes, I'm like, oh, yeah, these are wasted scenes. Like, I don't care that roller girl. Like, I know it's why it's in there or whatever, you know, but like, yeah, seeing her classmates like bully her or whatever. Not that it's like I don't see the value in that, whatever, but I forget just how much that sets up what her ultimate, uh, shall we say, low point is, which is that she not only can't escape this high school or colleague bullshit, but that she'd have to stoop so low as to fuck one of them uh, to continue her career. And, Mm -hmm. um, man, that scene when... uh, Hey, man, just let him do his thing. Yeah. And and not only that, but for him on camera to be like, oh, well, the least you could do, you know... and, and while yeah. while her lipstick is like turned him into the Joker, like he oh. just looks so pathetic in that entire thing, and yet he's still a quote unquote dude, bro. Want to see a magic trick? 
Oh, the jo- <laughs> for a moment I thought you were quoting the John C. Riley thing because of his magic show. I I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that was, that was um, a horrible magician, yes. by the way, but that's great. That's so great, though. The that's, way he just yeah. chucks the swords oh, on the, on the oh. stage. Um, but anyway, but with that guy and with that scene, um, from everything from within the limo to kicking him out to... Jack doesn't care how he treats Roller Girl. He just cares that he called him a washed-up director and yeah. nobody likes his films anymore. The fact that that's what prompts him to start kicking the shit out of him is such a telling little behavior because this movie, some of these characters, Jack included, is misogynistic. And, yeah. it's, and it's so weird because porn, when you watch it from that era, is so weird to talk about. On the one hand, you could write scholarly articles on how progressive porn and exploitation films were. Yeah. They were depicting things that most mainstream movies would never touch. And I don't mean explicit sex. I mean same-sex relations, uh, polyamory, you know, interracial love, you know, all these things that we take at least somewhat for granted now – Porn and other exploitation films were pretty much embraced doing it. That? Yeah, embraced yeah. that yeah. because they knew that they could, you know, if they won't do it, then of course we will because we can just do it and then, you know, a little something extra. We're, we're going to be shameless anyways, yeah. so whatever. Shamelessly, you know, capitalize on that. Yeah. On the other hand, these industries were never not under the thumb of you know, misogyny and patriarchy. And, and 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 that's what makes this weird, you know, like you can't have a Jack Horner who can be nice, you know, so to speak, to his actors and actresses without technically looking deeper and thinking he probably thinks of somebody like Amber as his property. Absolutely. I mean, he doesn't ever, like, hit her. And there were bad people in this industry, just like any other, who were like like Gerard Damiano, who was famously Linda Lovelace's uh, husband and business partner who also created uh, Deep Throat. He was a horrible person. Like, yeah. And there were some male film directors that were actually decent people. Maybe, you know, who knows what they did in their private time, but they were not, you know. What uh, we know of them, they were decent. Villainously yeah. bad or whatever. But even those people who were decent were probably still riding high on this wave of like, well, if this is acceptable, then I might as well put out this persona because then I'll get off Scott. Wow, free. it's oh. almost like, uh, yeah, the year 2018. What? You have um, after the switch to videotape, which, I mean, there is a clear cutoff in this film after William H. Macy's character yeah. murders his wife, her his wife's sex partner, whoever it was in that Both. scene. Uh, and oh. then, oh yeah, and yeah. then commits suicide as we move from 1979 to 1980. What a I mean, great way, by the way, to basically symbolically show the <laughs> the transfer from celluloid to VHS. Like, as someone who's still shooting on film and wants his films to be shown in 70 millimeter or any other form, uh, I feel like that scene is so comically blunt about the idea of the downfall of corroborating this desperate man's suicide with the moment in which porn went to VHS. Mm. Like, it, it's just so... That's when it went to shit. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we have the transition uh, from that, you know, the earlier, and we talked about this with, you know, my comparison to Scarface, but uh, 
the earlier prosperity of everybody within the porn industry. And then pretty much all the shit happens in the second half of the film. And I mean, everything with, I mean, the Colonel, I mean, that scene with him and Burt Reynolds, I mean, that's Burt Reynolds best scene in this film by far for me, where he's having this extraordinarily awkward conversation with the Colonel where he's like, he's okay with it. When he said he fucked a 15 year old girl and he didn't know. And I'm like, hey, yeah, man, as long as he didn't know. Like I was the way like, he keeps saying that. No, but, but it. Know. I was just like, holy fuck, Roman Polanski, holy shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is making me feel uncomfortable. And then, <laughs> and then it got uncomfortable. And then he's like, you know, those kids are just so cute. And it's like, oh, no. And even Burt Reynolds as Jack Horner, who is pretty much the lowest common denominator, just has to hang up the phone and leave. He doesn't just leave. Away. He just stares at him. And he's like, are you my friend? Like, oh, God. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I barely know who that character actor is, but he's so great in that little role. When he looks at, uh, early in the film, when he looks at his dick, you want to see it right now? Yes, please. <laughs> That's just, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> um, but that moment, that scene is fan-fucking-tastic. And then just the way the rest of the film plays out, the shootout scene with Don Cheadle is fabulous. Uh, only because it leaves him with that weird moment where he has to take the money or leave it, which obviously he takes it, and then he opens his shitty-ass fucking speaker store with that awful commercial, uh, and that's just wonderful. I fucking love that moment where it switches to the Beach Boys song, and then yeah. they're doing like the, the breakdancing shit. Like That was surreal. I so, love that. Let's talk really quick about Bucky Barnes' commercial, because A... I mean, that's him selling out, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, not like, obviously, he got his dream. Oh, yeah. But he is now dropping all pretense of being allowed to be anything other than black. Yeah, the black caricature. And, and, yet, and yet, still, he's doing an absolutely terrible commercial. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, he's so uncomfortable in that, but, you know, whatever. Although, what I love about that scene is that two things. One, it is in a microcosm in, you know, that 10, 20 seconds of it. That is pure gold porn acting mm-hmm. and porn writing. Because yeah, he literally is. says, and come inside us. And it's just like, oh, boy. You can't. Well, that's because well, Amber right. Waves is directing no, yeah. this. And that's yeah. why I love it. Like, you can't, you can take the porn out of the whatever. Or, but you that's know, take also, the man out of porn, but you can't take the porn out of But that's also man. great about... The, Scotty's holding up the The, the message of this film, for me at least is that these people cannot they cannot exist Escape. outside of this small community that they've previously lived in. Yes. Even Mark Wahlberg, who is awful at singing in this movie, uh, and also Did you catch music. my Transformers thing, by the way? Wait. Tell- remember I told you that there yeah. was going to be a Transformers reference? So you know that's a song he sings. You got the touch. That's the yeah. Theme song. yeah. Oh my god. He yes. was talking about Transformers. The yes. Other day. Yeah. And he was about to go home and watch Boogie Nights. So I was like, by the way, Tucson, there will be a fun little Transformers connection. Hmm. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. That's anyway. awesome. But even he, after the just uh, near death experience with Alfred Molina, uh, just comes crawling back and yeah. is can do the only thing what he can do, which is pull out his limp enormous cock and just say he's a superstar and boy when he did that that was i did not expect that to actually happen really that's like probably the most iconic moment of the whole movie. i told you i didn't know anything no, about right. this movie but it's funny to think of somebody who hasn't like doesn't like, know Whoa! that because that would be quite a sight as he's just 
pulling it out of his knee and just like, here this is. Now, obviously, there's the... Although that was great because it does show one hilarious thing, which is that porn actors in movies, porn male actors in movies never wear underwear. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. they can always get their dick out, which yeah. makes no sense because it's like, why... Well, I mean, females always have to wear underwear, so that way there's always that layer of seduction. But dudes, for some Free weird reason, balling. wear leisure pants well, just rubbing up against their you, dicks. You've got to be able to pull into the rape pose, as we awkwardly see uh, after... And we talked about the switch... Uh, the switch to videotape when they have the new Dirk Diggler, basically, who's uh, getting blown while holding a gun to the girl's head, uh, which is yeah, that was yeah, that was that was an interesting continuation common. of of that the whole thread of like, oh, do we endorse violence? No, we absolutely do not endorse violence against women. I was like, oh, now we're here. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I have thoughts about that, but that's kind of for a different episode. But one thing I will bring up is that the one moment that's easily one of the best moments of the movie Mm -hmm. is maybe the only thing that doesn't hold up for me now that I've gotten more familiar with this, you know, whatever, Uh, which is Jack Horner's speech, which is a great speech. Uh, Burt Reynolds sells the hell out of it and whatnot, but when he gives the speech to Eddie Adams about how he wants to make a movie, mm. you know, where they will mm-hmm. blow their load and yet want to sit in their seat to watch. Timeline just doesn't add up. It's <sighs> 1977, and porn has been a thing for a good six years or so. Maybe a little less, but still. Movies like Memories Within Myth Aggie and other pretty famous i mean that had an oscar campaign <laughs> um so for him i to, did not know that yeah I, no, i'm not saying a successful oscar uh, right, campaign, no but i did not know but that they that tried was, yeah and um, that's crazy yeah um and a few other select movies like that were already in existence so it, it's one thing if he just said he wanted to make the best movie of his career but for him that close to 1980 which is when porn started to then you know, dip, so to speak. Um, that was the only time where I don't care about historical accuracy, but for PTA to just kind of be somewhat blind to the fact that that's kind of what everybody was trying to do. I will say, well, this. not everybody. Some people genuinely were totally fine with just making yeah. stag films. Um, I will say this. Uh, I'm assuming that PTA wanted to have his cake and eat it too, which is so. totally fine. And I think that's why he shies around the fact of actually referencing any real movie that's ever been made because I don't think he wants those to be in this universe. And maybe this is a universe in which no good porn has been made, which is totally valid. Like this is and that's why well, I, I or, never or no good Jack Horner porn has ever been made. And that's true too. Yeah. The way he talks about it though, it makes it sound like nobody's ever done it. I understand and, that. Which and I say that as someone who basically I don't count that against a film. But I do think it sticks out as to like if you think that this is a like a, a novel idea that was actually a thing that happened back during the back half of the seventies where people were people. Uh, they, there's a reason why there's a phrase called the raincoat crowd and the raincoat crowd, were oh, yeah. the yeah. dudes who went to porn to jack off. Yep. So you made a movie for the raincoat crowd or you made a porn movie, not for them. And, and that was a real thing. And, and so uh movies like the one I it mentioned was so much simpler back then. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but movies like the ones I mentioned, um, you know, uh, Memories Within Miss Aggie or a few others. I mean, Deep Throat, technically, even though it was cheek, wasn't really a serious film. It was a comedy, technically. Um, 
Although most people think credit Deep Throat as being like the first mainstream porn, and while that's technically true, Boys in the Sand uh, by last Wakefield Pool, which was a gay porn, was technically predated it, and I think the only reason why it got to theaters was because it was gay, so therefore people called it Art House. <laughs> like, that, like, it was just a gay porn, um, one that was set on fi- shot on Fire Island, in which a bunch of very strapping young lads uh, in uh, went through a series of random vignettes on the beach and whatnot, and yet... Um, and that's why I love in uh, HBO's The Deuce, they actually go and see that movie. And someone tells James Franco's character, who's extremely homophobic, that they're going to see a, um, what do you call it, a sword and sandals picture. <laughs> but in, actually, in actuality, they're going to see uh, Boys in the Sand. Anyway, um, so just remember, guys, that uh, porn went to the theaters theatrically with gay porn first. Huh. Deep Throat was not the first one. Hmm, Actually, not progressive. I feel like a few other things were before. But anyway, Behind the Green Door, Memories Within Miss Aggie, The Devil and Miss Jones. These are movies that technically were trying to be something other. And they're all from like 1974 or so. Hmm. All right, I'm done. So let's move to final ratings. Okay. Uh, I'll go first. Yeah. Uh, I love this movie. I give it a four out of five. I think there's plenty here to chew on. Yes. And at the same time, uh, this is a really nice move for PTA and a really nice um, just continuation after Heart 8 into Magnolia because I think if you were to watch Heart 8 and then watch Magnolia and not see Boogie Nights, you would not necessarily think much of it and just think, oh, he's progressed and he's done this. But I think seeing Boogie Nights shows the progression he made as a filmmaker, and Magnolia just completes that. Uh, whereas this uh, is just a fantastic film that is set in a very specific time that has very diverse characters who cannot get out of their own small world they live on. And really, they, for the most part, don't want to. And... A lot of them just don't have the ability to, whether it be because they're black, whether it be because um, they're just not that smart um, or don't just have the capability to. Um, it, it's 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 interesting. And I, I, I do love everything about Mark Wahlberg's character early on in this film where he gets into that extremely uncomfortable fight with his mother uh, where she's telling him that he's too stupid and everything. And it is just horrible that as the film goes on not that he's too stupid to do anything but basically that moment defines the rest of his life that we see and it is um it is sad so yep this is a very good early pta film and the kind of film that i actually would like him to go back and make this kind of vain film again at some point so four out of five for me for boogie nights I give this a four out of five. Yeah. Um, this is the first time I've watched it, and I it definitely follows in the vein of the sort of films that I feel like I'm going to return to and find more in it that I really do enjoy. Um, but just on a first blush, I think this film is amazing. Just just in general, I can't say and I I I I can't say 
I can't be more infusive in in praising the actual cast of this film. Like it's just perfectly cast. I I love all the performances in this film. I love the cinematography. I love the music choice, and I love the subject matter. Even it's like it's it exists in this perfect little dynamic of like this is a film that could be made at any other time, right? But it had to come out in 1997 in order to sort of like ride on this wave of like treading the taboo and what is what is tasteful. And I love it for that. I, and I can't really speak to whether it speaks to a, a, a an accurate fidelity of what the porn industry was like in that time. It's like I don't have that referent. Nick has that referent. And I actually do appreciate um, – your like insights into this because it just kind of sort of clarifies like doesn't make it, it a weaker film no it just it shouldn't necessarily be accepted as exactly because it is the one film that people know right like, you yeah. know like, there's really nothing else right yeah so there, there's there's nothing else quite like this and I I definitely have to recommend this yeah 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 uh, it's a fantastic film this should be no surprise for myself it's my favorite director I'm doing films about my favorite kind of films so I, I eat it up this ensemble is so good in every scene that it's it's amazing we'll never I feel like we'll never get a cast of this caliber again I, I know that sounds crazy to think but just think about like how many roles there are to fill in this movie and how if we did that nowadays it would be so tumbler infused you know like it would just be random assortment of people that we just know like it would I don't know what I'm trying to say other than just I feel like there's less casting being done in these big type of ensemble films these days as there is input from the social media stratosphere of who we want to see work with each other. You know, this was done in a vacuum in which these were great stars, but also you had to trust that putting them in one movie, what nobody was going to overshadow each other. And in my opinion, nobody does. Like right. they all work so great together. Yeah. Um, and that this film wouldn't buckle under the weight of all these great performances, and it it doesn't. Um, so I I give this a four out of five, maybe four and a half, but for right now, four out of five. It's what I would call middle tier Paul Thomas Anderson because I do think he's still learning the ropes a little bit here. And um, in general, I think he's made slightly more provocative and powerful works. But if this is your second film, just go fuck yourself. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah. Wait, I, wasn't um, – <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to like no, tie not. back to another episode that we've, we've done before, but wasn't um, – do the right thing. What film was that for? That was his second. Fuck. If not his second, his th- whatever. But yeah, yeah, that was his first. Stu- it was just like this. It was his first. Yeah, studio. His, his first film was was she's got to have it, and then he went on to do like. Uh, yeah. So yeah, no, if you can do it. this. Yeah, you know your second time out, and the first time someone gives you all the resources to, to do what you want. Yeah, that's that's a home run. Were it not for Boogie Nights, we wouldn't have Magnolia, and I think that speaks for itself. Yeah. How about the the age that he was though? The fact that he was twenty six, yep. which is Insane. five years younger than I am right now, and that and never I'm just happens. Like, right God now. damn it! Yeah, that's my I age. Am, right I mean, now. I'm I'm just I I feel like even though I have a 
a good job right. and I have a college degree and right. I have a wife, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing in my life? Oh, no, I, I'm 26 <laughs> right now and I want to pull a little bill right now and shoot myself in the goddamn head. Oh, my God. Oh. But I'm, um, I'm kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't do it here. Yeah. Um, uh, let's <laughs> say that for a more public venue. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, no, 26, though. That, to make this film? And not only that, but that wouldn't happen today. Like, even though we're Disney and so are giving, you know, young hotshot, I still feel like today, not even today, but back then, like, you got to be in your 30s before you're trusted with such a budget and such material. Yeah. How old was Edgar Wright when he made Shaun of the Dead? But that still was pretty... Not indie, but that was a foreign country, so you got to imagine he had already done a TV show that was popular in that country. Okay. How, 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 uh, let's, let's think about this. I'll though. look it up, though. At the time, how big were, not Burt Reynolds, but how big were Mark Wahlberg acting wise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julie? I mean, these people and Paul Thomas Anderson's career have panned out, but. At the same time, there's a reason why, because he did great work here, and they did as well. Yeah. But, well, I mean, getting this wasn't like a... Julianne Moore and Burt Reynolds was a get. At the time, Julianne Moore was peaking. I'm not saying because she was doing her best work, but she was getting roles left and right with some of the best auteurs. I mean, in that time, you had her working with Paul Thomas Anderson, but you also had her... Very famously in Robert Altman's Shortcuts and a bunch of other movies. And she was such. in Big Lebowski not too long Big after. Lebowski yep. with Cohen. So this was definitely her era, so to speak. Uh, Burt Reynolds, even if he was washed up at that point, to get him to come out of that to do something he clearly didn't want to do is kind of insane to begin with. So um, while I agree, everybody else that kind of peppers it were, you know... But they weren't. It wasn't quite like a Days to Confuse thing where they were nobodies. You know, it's not like Ben Affleck swinging a paddle, going, "Oh, maybe this guy will be Batman one day." <laughs> ben Affleck's career has really taken a turn for the worse here recently. Yeah. <laughs> Pour one out for you, buddy. Oh, so if you have any thoughts out there on Boogie Nights or other Paul Thomas Anderson works, always feel free to send just them on to us. Email me. Yeah, just email Nick at filmtankshow at gmail dot com. Coming up in our next episode is going to be a fun episode for multiple reasons, one of which is that Nick is finally and wonderfully getting more into Batman, but also the film we're going to talk about is a formative film for myself and Toussaint, and also one of our favorite films, I think, of all time, Yeah, both of us, and that is the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film Oh yes, with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Uh, it is a... Just a fantastic film, in my opinion. I'll have a lot to talk about in that film. As will I. Yeah. Uh, and where it fits into the Batman universe, too, uh, there's plenty to chew on there. Oh, yeah. uh, can I ask you a question? Sure. I know this is kind of a question for the next episode, but I'm feeling a little frisky. Sure. I'll try is, to... is, I was going to say, if you know, is Batman 1989, that movie, the only thing that you can think of in which the Joker is... Uh, tied to the Wayne's murder. Like, is there any other comic book or anything? That is, for me, so far as I know, that is the, that's the origin point. Okay. Of that, That's the popular cultural origin point of trying to tie 
these two characters together. So by it hadn't done me. Had been done before then. I don't think so. And I, really, I, no one else. It's not like no one did it. I'm sure somebody's going to try and like pull something out of the woodwork or something like that. But this, okay. this, this to me, that's the first time anybody tried to wrap okay. like the Joker's origin and Batman's origin together. Just curious. Yeah. Although I will say, oh no, this is also the first time anyone's ever tried to do an origin for Joker, and also at the same time, the only the first real time we've had a full length Batman film on screen, right? Well, yeah, in the, that era, that's oh, not yeah. like Adam West, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, but that was that was a pre, yeah, made. I, I agree. Oh, with yeah. yeah, yeah. So it we've got plenty to talk about with that. I mean, I've got my thoughts on that. I'm sure Toussaint does mm-hmm. uh, on his I'm own. I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah. I've seen it once. Yeah, it's it's a it is one the film of, of its time. It is one of my favorite films from my childhood. Oh yeah. Really quick, just because mm-hmm. we're on the subject, Toussaint, I rewatched Mask of the Phantasm, mm-hmm. and I think the first time I gave it a one and a half. Oh out yeah, of five stars. I remember that. Uh, I rewatched it. I gave it four out of five stars. Holy wow. fucking yeah. shit! Yes, yeah. vindicated by history. God damn. I mean, yes. those cars still shouldn't be on the rooftop. I don't give a fuck. But everything else was definitely. Oh my definitely god, golden. So. That yes, is, that is that. Fuck my, yes. That has to be your biggest rating. Increase. Probably uh, close to that, though. I also rewatched. Batman Begins, and that went from two to three and a half. So I'm not, not as dramatic, but still. no, not as dramatic. But Batman I'm, Begins is the definitive Batman origin story. I genuinely like. I'm excited to rewatch the other two, just in general, because I'm curious to see if anything else happens. As yeah. whatever, but I also can't see either one of those just from what I because I've seen them a couple times. From what I've seen of them, I can't see Batman Begins being topped in no one's I'm so fucking hyped right now. God damn. All right. Well, next week we're going to talk about the 1989 Batman and hopefully be as hyped. I'm going to carry this energy right into the next week. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Tucson's just going to stay here. Always. All right. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much to Tucson Egan, Nick Cheney, and the listeners. From myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to us here at Film Tank. We'll catch up with you next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.